0: hey everyone welcome back to the jacobin show i'm jen pan here today with a special guest host that's right it's your and my favorite video editor kale brooks kale what's shaken.
1: hey yeah i'm I'm not typically on screen and probably for good reason, but happy to, happy to co-host today, uh, and happy to, to take down, you know, the, the scourge that's, you know, coming across America wave by wave, year by year, and, uh, set it, set the record straight, finally.
0: We will set the record straight, uh, we are interviewing James Oaks. We actually uh, pre-recorded the interview, uh, so we spoke to him yesterday. I thought it was a really, really uh, fantastic and in-depth interview. Uh, He talks, of course, about the 1619 Project. Um, As I think a lot of you probably know, he has some pretty uh, fierce, but uh, I think well-informed and very uh, uh, rigorous criticisms of the project. Uh, But, of course, he's also a renowned scholar of Slavery, anti-slavery, emancipation, Lincoln and the Civil War. So he talks about all of that as well. Uh, and Cale, you actually uh, got a chance to obviously hear that interview beforehand. So you can you can vouch that it's a good one.
1: Yeah, no, we, we went to him not because he's like you know, a polemic person. It's because he's like one of America's most serious historians of this period. And he finds this project coming out of The New York Times wrong. And that's significant. Um, And so I I think he he does a a pretty fair and and accurate job of of explaining what his issues are. And then, you know, you can hopefully make your mind up if, you know, if your mind isn't already made up.
0: And speaking of serious historians, uh, because we were sort of thinking through the themes of this show and, uh, you know, we, we had this great interview with James Oaks yesterday. We realized that we would be remiss if we did not invite a very special surprise guest for this episode. That's right. It is our friend Matt Karp. You know him as a historian of the Civil War. He teaches over at Princeton. And I was recently reminded he is currently a fellow at the New York Public Library, where I believe he's transmitting from at the moment. Matt, what's up?
2: That's right. I just want to say, Kale, your hair looks magnificent. So oh, it's great to have. You. Thanks, Kale's dog.
0: hair always looks good.
1: <laughs> Matt's Matt's in between, like filing the Dewey Decimal System right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. I'm 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 slowly working my way through like nine seventy eight point four six. Kale's hair, though, I thought Kale's hair on message is Bernie Sanders, isn't it? It's just like it's resolute. It cannot mm. be cannot be like sidetracked or kind of you know, CNN or MSNBC out of its purpose and mission.
1: Yeah. And I have the the cups on right now, so you can't see, but shaved into both sides is Medicare for all jobs for all. So it's, I'm just, it's, it's just like Sanders. Stay tuned for the next show if you
0: want to see that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Matt, uh, of course, we're really happy to have you on The Jacobin Show, as always. Um, As I was mentioning earlier, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today is, you know, not just that you are also a Civil War historian, um, but that you had a great article in Harper's that came out earlier this year titled History as End, uh, 1619-1776 and the Politics of the Past. Um, and I, you know, encourage anyone who hasn't yet read the article to check it out in Harper's. Uh, but just really quickly for now, I, I think what's important about this article is that you sort of look at and critique uh, what you see as, I guess, a tendency that's sort of emerging among liberals where, you know, people will invoke, I, I guess, like past atrocities or injustices in order to ostensibly shed some light on politics today. Uh, But, you know, in the piece, you argue that in many ways, this kind of thinking, you know, sort of distorts or artificially limits how we should actually practice politics. So I want to start by just quickly reading a short quote from that article. um, And then I have a question for you. So you write the role of history today, especially within liberal discourse, has changed rather than mind the past for usable politics, whether as analog inspiration or warning. Thinkers now travel in the opposite direction from present injustice to historical crime. Current American inequalities, many liberals insist, must be addressed through encounters with the past. Programs of reform or redistribution, no matter how ambitious, can hope to succeed only after the country undergoes a profound reckoning, to use the key word of the day, with centuries of racial oppression." Uh, so I think we can, you know, over the course of this conversation, unpack that a little bit. But I first wanted to kick off by asking you, why is it that liberals are drawn to this sort of engagement with history right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, the piece goes into this at, at, at some more length, but I think there's a there's a broader shift that's happened kind of, you know, you could describe it as a sort of a civil war within liberalism, because, you know, in a lot of these arguments, you know, about, let say, the 1619 Project, you'll have people like Sean who who is, you know, one of the most... Um, you know, outspoken critics, some would say pugnacious critics of the project who, you know, insist that he's the true liberal in this fight and the Sixty-Nineteen represents something else. So there's, but to me, you know, when I argue with Sean about this stuff, I'm like, no, they're liberals. It's the New York Times. What could be more liberal um, than, than the New York Times magazine? Um, it's whether you have a kind of a functional or, or a sort of, you know, an almost an abstract idealistic definition of liberalism, I guess, maybe. Um, but I think what's happened is, um, for a large sections of the liberal left, the media class, and elsewhere, to be sort of sympathetic for a minute, even though I do have these critiques of 1619, et cetera, is that the kind of, if you will, um, you know, the 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 sort of bland optimism uh, of the of the sort of Democratic Party's vision of the past, from Bill Clinton through to Obama. Um, you know, Obama's favorite line that he always quoted from King, who was borrowed from Theodore Parker, an abolitionist, about the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This sense that, you know, for all whatever reverses we, we have faced in history past, you know, slavery, dispossession of Native Americans, you know, abuse of, you know, violence against, you know, working class and labor, you know, organizers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, oppression of women. All of these things are like in the process of being corrected or if they have not already been corrected. Um, and that was the sort of, you know, in Obama, you know, in some ways was the apotheosis of this, this kind of embodiment of um, a belief in the not just the capacity to transcend the past, but this idea almost that, you know, the past had been transcended in his own person in some sense. Um, uh, and I think that I think, you know, in the last in the decade, basically since his election, we we saw Huge amounts of disillusionment, and I think some of that was is is, is sort of genuine. And um, I don't want to make it all about Obama, but I think a, a broader disillusionment post economic crisis, post um, uh, post Ferguson, and and other sort of their other flashpoints, with the persistence of just the absolutely most savage, grueling inequalities in American life. Along uh, it, you can you can track them along racial lines, you can track them along class lines, you can track them in all sorts of ways. Um, but it's clear that for all of the sort of happy talk about moral arcs and progress, this is still, you know, one of the most unequal societies in the history of the world, maybe the most. And um, so I think, I mean, like, again, we can get to my sort of problems with the 1619 projects approach, but I think the Genesis for it comes out of a quite an authentic frustration with, Um, this idea that, you know, that history, you you know, only that American history in particular only has to sort of, you know, that every problem is just, um, it's just a temporary impediment to the obvious working out of a solution. Um, When you think about, you think about the economic history of this country since, say, the 1960s, or the civil rights movement, um, and you realize that the material conditions that, you know, many of the figures in the 1960s, like Martin Luther King, like, you know, you guys have talked a lot about, um, you know, Paul I know is obsessed with uh with Baird Rustin, etc. You know, with, A Philip with, Randolph. A Philip Randolph. Both. both of them, no? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no? both, Only, both, both, but a little of I, A and B. We
1: saw Moment we saw a, you struggling.
2: <laughs> oh, come on. Um anyway, well I, I've had meetings with him about Bayard Rustin, not Philip Randolph. So anyway. Um that that being it th- leave, leave, leave that words to me. A lot of these These, you know, foundational figures in this movement for racial justice, you know, talked about this economic and the the, the sort of undergirding economic injustice in the 1960s. And you look at the country today, it's more unequal. So I think by any number of measures. Um, So I think I think in other words, there's plenty of cause for a, 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 a desire for a sweeping revision of the sort of liberal pieties that have kind of governed our history and our kind of, you know, kind of bland belief in progress that that's not going to cut it anymore. The question is what do, you, if you wanted, what kind of revision do we need?
1: Right. It's, it's funny. I mean, so much of what has kind of made up, uh, I don't know, liberal attitudes, uh, to politics has, has largely been we're the people who are on the side of truth and of facts and of science and of reason, um, that there's like, kind of like, they, they claim to be, uh like holding on to like those things that typically we would you know associate with like the enlightenment or the left traditionally uh but and also like this is i think obama's kind of a perfect example because the uh the obama years were you know like neoliberal uh neoliberals were saying you know we're not ideological we're just doing what's most rational like we're doing what has to happen in order to keep the country going there's you know um thomas frank uh has kind of characterized this as like the project was already complete by the 90s so it's mostly just kind of you know keeping the the ship going forward um you know keeping the the deck swabbed um but obviously you know i think that has just been so thoroughly punctured that people obviously don't under people don't believe that anymore it seems like um you spend uh, a good chunk of your piece delineating kind of how conservatives approach history and then how liberals approach history. And it it does seem like there's something of a convergence where it is just history for political expediency's sake. um, And, and it becomes kind of a, you know, a self rationale for, you know, why they have these really, you know, milquetoast politics that are really just to the benefit
2: of middle-class people. Yeah the frustration for me on the on the sort of left liberal side of it is that even if to some extent, if, you know, I, I think that and I think there are different, you know, we could probably get deeper into and sort of delineate various like kind of sub tendencies within, um, say, the New York Times view of of American history. You know, I think, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones certainly has one perspective, but even within the contributors of the project or more broadly between the sort of leadership of the New York Times and other sort of liberal or left liberal figures that have glommed, uh, uh, you know, and sort of celebrated the project. I think some, some, of the, some of it is really derived from this, from, I, like I said, a sort of an authentic frustration with, with the current conditions and a belief that like, okay, what we really need to do is expose the deep rot and, um, you know, the, this country's origins in this particular kind of oppression that, you know, essentially have sort of determined its entire history to this point. And once we expose that, once we reckon with that, there will be, I think this, this part is usually unstated. Um, but there will be some sort of catharsis wherein like somehow contemporary issues will be addressed. And then, of course, there are other people who are within that frame who have a very different kind of political vision, who don't really think that any kind of catharsis or transformation is possible, but are equally as sort of attracted to, in some ways, the sort of the pessimism of this vision or the, or the sense of limits mm-hmm. um, this is where that that, that kind of technocratic idea that, you know, Kale, you're talking about comes in and I think it's actually sort of oddly compatible with this, that, okay, there is this sort of like dark, there are these like dark currents that run through American history um, that, you know, various, you know, what we might've thought, what, what an older narrative used to teach us were moments of kind of progressive change, like emancipation or the civil rights, actually only covered over these deeper continuities of oppression. And in some ways that shows the limits of what we can, actually do in the present. So what we really need to focus on is almost kind of basically keeping the barbarians, um, holding the barbarians off at the gate, keeping the far right out of power and kind of just, you know, shoring up the meager resources that we have in a country that is, that is, you know, in some sense, almost doomed by its history uh, and and really can't ask for more. And I think that's also often unstated because very few people would want to confront that, uh, much less speak out loud, that kind of politics, because it's like so Dispiriting, but I think that both of those kind of unstated assumptions, you know, together fuel um, this the, this particular kind of you, you know this particular kind of revision, which is so kind of relentlessly um, uh, you know pessimistic to the point of being paralytic mm-hmm. about struggle in American history.
0: So, Matt, we promised to release you back to the library after just just a mini interview. Um, So we will uh, hold to that and let you go now. But I want to shout out your Harper's article again. Uh, It is History as End 1619, 1776 and the Politics of the Past. And um, obviously, Matt goes into much greater detail uh, exploring some of the themes that we just talked about now. So, Matt, thank you again, and we'll see you soon.
2: See you next week. That's the great thing.
0: Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> That's the monologuing at such length that I only have to deal with two questions because I just... Right, five. yeah. So, <laughs>
0: well, you'll you'll be back next week to talk about the 1776 project, oh,
2: yeah. so... <laughs> oh, yeah, my favorite year in all history, still. Yeah. Find out what my favorite is. Bye, guys.
0: All right, all right. thank you, Matt. See ya. I obviously wish we could have kept that on for longer. uh, He has to file
1: more books away. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Librarians got Um, him working today.
0: I really do recommend his Harper's article if you haven't checked it out yet, uh, because it it isn't really about the 1619 project proper. Um, Obviously, you know, our interview with James Oaks gets more into the kind of substance of the project and what he sees as... Uh, some inaccuracies or you know some uh, misconceptions, um, but Matt's piece is really good because it sort of takes this bird's eye view of you know the ways that uh, different ends of the political spectrum kind of marshal history. Mm-hmm. But I think that a really important question that he sort of touched on when we were just talking is you know uh, when it comes to something like the 1619 project and uh, you know other kind of I guess we might call it like liberal revisionist histories. Obviously, you know, we understand the kind of moral imperative behind them. And as Matt was saying, a lot of it, I think, is a very rational or reasonable response to certain forms of liberal history that came before. But what's so troubling, and we actually get into this with James Oakes, is that ultimately these politics end up being pretty nihilistic or or pessimistic. I mean, they don't really point a direction in which to go if you just say that uh, you know slavery is slavery and racism um, are America's original sin and there's basically an unbroken line from slavery to the inequalities of today um it, it makes it actually very difficult to figure out what we should do about it if you subscribe to that reading of history
1: right well I mean to be serious about history to really like look back and, and try to take something away from it you're trying to understand causality you want to understand, mm-hmm. Why did this event happen? How did we get from this period of time to this other period of time? What were the factors, the key factors that led that change? And for, you know, for most liberals, um, it's kind of just like a wishy-washy, you know, kind of everybody category. Uh, You know, it ends up becoming very idealist or very um, basically redounds to uh, culture that it's um, people had the right ideas or the wrong ideas and those ideas spread. Um, though, you know, someone told someone else and they picked it up and then they did something with it. And the fact that you had like this, this germination of, of, you know, bad ideas, uh, is kind of what produces history. And so when, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, American slavery and, um, and our, you know, brutal history of, uh, of Jim Crow, of, um, you know, various like uh both like oppressive regimes locally as well as um like racist and xenophobic ideology that, that is you know throughout all of American history. Um it ends up saying, well, you know, uh clearly the problem is that all these bad ideas were there and then people ended up doing bad things because of them. And uh that's just wrong. That's just mm-hmm. the exact wrong way to look at history. It's backwards mm-hmm. that like, what ends up happening is that you have, uh, you know, a particular social system in place, um, certain rules for that social system, whereby in order for someone to get by, they have to do X, Y, Z, Um, you know, and some people that's, you know, I got to go to work every day and, you know, uh, try you know, make some income so that I can then uh, buy the things I need on the market. Or if you're um, someone who lives off of those people and you extract their uh, effort and end up, uh, you know, pocketing, you know, all of their effort and their labor uh, and turning it into a profit, um, you then end up uh, having a very different set of rules. And so, um, you know, if you're a plantation owner in the South, uh, you have a very uh, particular set of rules that you have to live by in order to reproduce yourself um, because, uh, you don't want to just give up everything. Um, no rational person in any situation is going to say, I'm just going to give up everything I have. Mm-hmm. And, um, that like, once you're in these situations, like it militates against change. And so that's what ends up creating ideologies where those people in these situations, whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed, you have to say, why the fuck am I here? And,
0: you know, it's funny. I think that, uh, those relationships in a way also explain why projects like the 1619 project and other forms of liberal revisionist history have sort of caught on with the liberal, uh, you know, economic elite, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, when you subscribe to a vision or an understanding of history in which it's sort of culture and the ideas that you put forward that drive change, Well, like that puts people who work at the New York Times or who work in universities or who, you know, uh, are are commentators or politicians uh, that situates them as the agents of change. Um, Now, obviously, on this show, we don't believe that they are, uh, but that's awfully convenient for them.
1: Yeah. Isn't it great to have a worldview where you say, like, I'm the most important person in society Mm -hmm. for, like, creating good outcomes? (laughs) It's great. (laughs) 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 um i wish i could say that but Mm -hmm. like it's just not the case like that's just Mm -hmm. not like um obviously like that's not to like dismiss uh you know research going back to history you know making arguments um you know if for only just you know we can look back at history and see like that all of like you know these you know whether it's parties political parties unions um important kind of political leaders within these groups, they're all debating endlessly. And so I don't think they're wasting their time. Like these debates matter, but uh, it's also just so clear that like something like the 1619 project is not trying to be serious uh, with history. Like it is, they might understand it in those terms, but effectively it is trying to make a modern political uh, critique. It's trying to um, offer you know, this is how we understand our past, and therefore, this is what we're going to do in the future um, when it comes to racial inequalities. Uh, and
0: I think I, I think I agree with Matt that you know, I, I. Well, actually, I mean, obviously, we can't speak to the motives of you know the people that run or participated in the 1619 Project, let alone the New York Times. Um, I, I, I think that it is. I think that there is a reading where... I think it's possible to say that it was an attempt at some sort of serious understanding of history or some sort of serious reckoning, again, the word of the day,
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with
0: the past. Um, but, you know, I, I keep thinking of Matt's article title, History as End, mm-hmm. and what I really think of the 1619 Project as is history as a dead end, right? Because right. it's like, like... Again, I, I I don't want I don't want to like um jump the gun on the James Oakes interview too much. I promise we're getting to that. Uh, but he really, you know, lays it out better than than I think I could. Um, but again, the question is if you know, if we if really nothing has changed, or if we're so locked into uh our history, uh, which again no one denies is in many ways, uh, extremely brutal it's and bad. atrocious and unjust. It's bad. Um, <laughs> but if we really can't escape from it, well, what does that mean for our political strategy? And you know, for me, I don't think the answer is well. The 1619 project exists, and just because it's out in the world, things are going to get better.
1: Right. Well, and it just. Yeah, I think that's all true. And and yeah, I, I wouldn't want to say that the people working on 1619 or like, honestly, a lot of, you know, similar types of projects um, that a lot of these end up living in like the NGO world, like the individuals who carry these things out, like, probably want good outcomes for other people, they probably, you know, have decent morals, you know, generally maybe you know it's probably very vague but they they do want other people to not you know live in in horrible situations and not have like terrible bad social outcomes Mm -hmm. um but the problem is that like their contemporary class position ends up completely limiting what they actually think is politically possible because like when if if our our understanding of history and how history's changed uh, and what it took to overcome slavery or Jim Crow, uh, it's completely in line And the way that you know Matt was talking about with Baird Rustin and A. Philip Randolph, like it's completely in line with us now in 2021 saying we need Medicare for All in a Jobs program. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, whereas these people would not come out in favor of those those programs, they would not support the politicians supporting that
0: in, in fact i believe that many of the figures associated with said project have come out against or have had many criticisms criticisms of let's say the politicians who have been most prominent supporters of medicare for all
1: yeah bernie uh <laughs> what <laughs> i'm not calling you on your birthday <laughs> that, was, that was like a, that was like one of my worst bernies <laughs>
0: Yeah, you can do better, um, but people will have to, people have to, you know, look out, look out for future shows to see that.
1: One one shot. Fucked it. Yeah. Jen, wait, before we go to the interview, I do want to ask you a question, um, because I think this is something that I, I deal with, um, like I've had this conversation with like some friends before and and because I like history, I try to read a lot of history. um, This kind of keeps coming up and it's, you know, do we take lessons from history like, how do we, like, what are we getting out of it politically? Mm -hmm. Like, we can, we can all agree, like, yeah, it's fun sometimes to read history, especially if it's written well, like, it's engaging and interesting, and, you know, love to learn about other people in the world, whatever. Yes, we agree. But then, like, what do we, what's, like, the political upshot of, of studying history? And obviously, we should, you know, could have asked Matt, but... He's, yeah, yeah,
0: we we should definitely ask Matt <laughs> at some point in the future, and probably every other historian that we have on here. We should have asked James well, actually we kinda did ask James, uh so you know, stay tuned, stay tuned for the interview. <laughs> Sorry to keep previewing it. Um but just really quickly, no I, I mean, it it is an interesting question because Um, Again, I, and I think that this is one of the tensions that Matt kind of explores in his Harper's piece. Like, I don't think that every history has to automatically lend itself to some sort of like perfectly developed political strategy. Mm -hmm. Like there can be like history of like, I don't know, the 30 years war or whatever that we don't take anything from or we, I mean, maybe there's some political lesson you could take from that. I'm sure there is actually, but like, that doesn't have to be the point. Um, But I think what's frustrating about, you know, the 1619 Project and and uh, other strains of liberal revisionist history that kind of take this nihilistic or pessimistic turn is that, you know, they really I think that these projects really purport to. Uh it they insist that they impart some lesson for his for politics today, but it's mm. like what is it other than feel bad about the past or like reckoning and like wh- I'm sorry like we we keep hearing this word, what is a reckoning like I feel like a reckoning and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee, you know, <laughs> like a reckoning is just like I, I don't know a bad
1: cup, but
0: <laughs> K- yeah not in new not in New York where I you know. are um kale, what's a reckoning
1: um I don't know. I feel like that's something you do in like the theater or something. Uh, <laughs>
0: going back to yeah.
1: going back to your segment from a couple of weeks ago of mm, like, yeah, of this is you know this is where liberals end up like go mm-hmm. to wreck it is to they just mm-hmm. watch movies and you know feel right, yeah. feel a little better about you know uh, I don't know their privilege or something. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so just to just to kind of touch briefly on your question again, you know, I. I think that somebody like Eric Foner, who I mentioned in the interview, um, is, you know, he, 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 very sort of famously identifies as recon identifies Reconstruction as this time period that leftists can study, uh, not just because it's interesting or you know it's an understudied period in history, but because we can actually take some political strategy uh, away from that time period. Now, obviously, you know historical analogs are just that—they're analogs. So there's never going to be a blueprint that we can just you know, use, uh, but for example, to m- maybe to talk about the New Deal, uh, I think that it's really worth studying what worked about the New Deal and why. It's also worth studying the shortcomings of the New Deal to figure out what we can do better, um, you know, should should we revive the labor movement and actually, you know, obtain some kind of state power, uh, which of course is very, very far down the line if, if it comes to fruition at all. Um, but the point being that yes, I costs. think-
1: Fingers crossed to yeah,
0: get it. Yeah, knock on
1: wood. Um, <laughs> yeah, kn- knock on wood, so that we take state power.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that'll do the trick. <laughs> uh, but but the point being that like so again to to invoke the New Deal, obviously the liberal revisionist history conception of the New Deal is that the New Deal was racist. It excluded black people okay, that is actually closer to a fabrication than it mm. is to a truth. And the reason why that is dangerous, I mean, th- again, we've talked about this on the show before, this is not to say that the New Deal was perfect in, by any stretch of the imagination. This is not to say that the New Deal benefited black people uh, as greatly as it benefited white people. Like all of that we've talked about and acknowledged on the show before. So mm. I'm not going to like run through that list of caveats again, but if you want to hear them, you should watch our episode with Toure Reid. Yeah. Um, but the, the point is when you say the new deal was racist and it excluded black people, then we should throw the new deal out. But the thing is, we shouldn't throw the new deal out because there's a lot that we can take from the new deal and sort of make better for today. At least that's what I think.
1: Right. Well, and I just don't, I just don't know what it means to say the new deal was racist. Like it, like it's, it's it becomes a moral judgment on, you know, a thing that is it's millions of people are involved in like Mm -hmm. concurrently that like it involves african americans it involves every single ethnic group in america it's not like the creation of a single individual it's like a massive web of policy attempts uh some way more successful some you know not as successful some that we live with today like some of like the infrastructure that you know we enjoy regularly in this country um a lot of parks, uh, you know, a lot of like the actual, you know, it, it bridges, dams or other things that like actually kind of have created our modern society, even though it's largely in decay at this point, uh, was created during that period. And so mm-hmm. to say like this project was racist, it means like that the project wanted you know racial you know it wanted a segregated outcome that it wanted it saw people as inferior like it just it's
0: i think people do argue that
1: no i know they do but it doesn't it doesn't make sense that's like it's that's the like it's just it's it's just a really kind of like bad way to think about like history and projects and programs and and like epochs and um and so i think like like when i think of of like taking lessons from history i mean you know, I think, I think we should try to be as scientific as possible and, and treat mm-hmm. this in the same way that like, you know, uh, a scientist in, you know, biology or something, you know, when they're looking back at, um, Agreed. you know, they're, they're making experiments. And so history is largely, uh, you know, a bunch of trial and errors at the level of society of, you know, how did we organize ourselves here or there, or, you know, these people organized these other people and these people tried to destroy these other people. And, How do we understand, like, how these systems worked or didn't work or what led to them? And I think, like, what we take away is, like, we try to build up uh, a framework, a worldview today based on understanding, you know, what forces in society actually uh, cause change and are, in Mm -hmm. fact, powerful. Um, And then that, you know, now we you know, because we can't change the past, obviously, we now look to the future and say, you know, how do we understand this mess of everything in front of us and and pose concrete political questions? And to say, you know, like to say, inequality is like, the massive problem facing the globe in the 21st century, is, uh, like, it's based on a particular worldview and a framework that we think that, uh, you know, we're measuring certain things that other people are not measuring, that we're um, you know, part of it's a normative value or normative judgment rather. And I think that's fine. Like inequality
0: is you know, bad. Yeah.
1: Like we can, we can say it's like, it's normatively morally bad. Yeah. Um, but we can also like understand, you know, how and why, you know, the vast majority of people end up toiling their lives away to the benefit of a small handful of other people who extract mm-hmm. their, their surplus effort and work and, mm-hmm. and then end up having, you know, tons and tons of money that they you know uh end up right now they've not been reinvesting uh they've been sitting on it in banks
0: uh yeah so that's a that's that's an interesting way of putting it because i think that the 1619 project does exactly the opposite where it kind of you know lets the empirical stuff fall by the wayside in order to build a moral case uh and and you know James Oakes will get into the uh, empirical stuff when you know we inter- when we interview him. But um, you're you're arguing for basically the opposite, I think.
1: Well, we have or the- not
0: not to abandon the moral case. Um, obviously, that will always be there. But the point of studying history is, n- I guess, not to uh, cherry pick or not to kind of bend history to suit your political needs, right. but to actually uh, study. Study, again, the social forces that made a specific moment in history, the social and economic forces that made a specific moment in history possible. If there was social change, how was that produced? And what can we take away from that in order to, if not replicate that kind of change, uh, mm-hmm. create some new kind of change today?
1: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the difference between us and biologists. Just to finish the metaphor, it's just that, like, we study capitalism because we fundamentally find it unequal and unjust Mm -hmm. and we want to change it. And it's, and we understand like it's not going to change just by identifying it as unjust that Mm -hmm. the structures are too powerful as they, as they exist as social forces in the world for us to just all morally denounce capitalism. It doesn't, it doesn't, that alone will not work. You will Mm -hmm. not overturn the system by everyone agreeing that it's bad. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, and so you have to, this is like the, you know, the question for socialists in the 21st century is, you know, we have 200 years so far of, of experiments and tests of, you know, um, modern, not always uh, full and, you know, actually very, you know, infrequently full democracy, but some kind of democratic capitalism and, uh, you know, a modern left uh, based in working class people uh, and people, you know, that have, a left political, political principles and a worldview and a framework that have tried to change the world. And now we have to, you know, pick up where they left off and, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And, um, you know, let's, uh, give it another go, I guess. So speaking of which. All right. Well, I,
0: yeah, (laughs) I, I think we've been, uh, teasing the interview for quite a bit now. So, um, Again, we, we interviewed James Oakes. Uh, this is a pre record, um, but I, I had a, a great time doing this interview. Um, I loved talking to Oaks and um, I, th- I think Kale concurs. So let's go to the interview. We're now joined by James Oakes. He is Distinguished Professor of History at the CUNY Graduate Center and the author of several influential books on the history of the United States from the Revolution through the Civil War, including The Radical and the Republican, Freedom National, The Scorpion's Sting, and his most recent, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln, and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. Jim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you are, of course, a historian of slavery, emancipation, and the Civil War, among uh, other events in U.S. history, and we will definitely get to uh, all of those topics uh, in a little bit. But I wanted to kick off by asking you about the 1619 Project from The New York Times, which, of course, has been the subject of a lot of robust public debate over the last, I guess, two years uh, since it came out in 2019. And uh, you were one of uh, five signatories on a letter to the New York Times kind of at the start of the debate, uh, which sort of kicked off a lot of the discussion. And um, I wanted to ask you about that in particular, because uh, one of your co-signatories, Sean Wilenz, recently had a great longer piece uh, kind of discussing, you know, some of his misgivings and concerns about the 1619 Project. And in that piece, he talked about how quite a few historians had actually been approached to assess the project uh, and and respond to it and critique it, uh, but a lot of the historians who were approached to sign onto the letter, uh, you know, get, uh, said something along the lines of, you know, well, I agree with your concerns, or, or, you know, I I have issues with the 1619 project as well, but I'm not ready to put my name to an open letter because, you know, of X, Y, or Z political considerations, or because I think a lot of the historians, you know, uh, that that Willens mentioned. Uh, said something along the lines of like, well, you know. I'm not so sure about some of the claims made by the 1619 project, but it's a really important cultural event. And I don't want to be seen as, you know, impugning the work of black journalists, Um, all of which I think, you know, are legitimate and fair concerns. So uh, just by way of beginning, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to sign the open letter to the New York Times and what kind of your main concerns with the 1619 project are?
3: Wow, that's a big question. uh I signed the letter basically because it it focused narrowly on some fairly egregious factual errors in the in the uh, mostly in the introduction to the project uh, but my concern about factual errors lay elsewhere. Outside of the purview of of that particular letter, they were focused primarily on the question of the relationship between slavery and the American Revolution, which uh, the 1619 Project not only gets wrong, it gets it backward. That is, the, it, we've known for decades that the central significance of the American Revolution to the history of slavery and New World Slavery in particular was that it was the beginning of anti-slavery politics. It's the first time you got abolition on a significant scale. And it went through one state after another. And the, the accumulation of those states that abolished slavery, inspired by the revolution, is what we call the North. And it's impossible to imagine American history from the revolution to the Civil War without a North and a South in conflict with one another, repeatedly, ultimately, to the point where the whole country collapses into civil war. So to get it, it's not just, it's one thing to say they made a mistake when they said it was a pro, a, that pro-slavery defense was a primary reason for uh, declaring your independence. They, it's, it's not only was it not a primary reason, it was virtually no reason, but it, it as I said, it gets backwards the actual historical significance of the of the American Revolution for the history of slavery and anti-slavery in particular and you know that that is an indication of a larger problem throughout the 1619 project which is that it erases substantial conflicts throughout US history over uh slavery and racism in in the United States and it does that i think Primarily, well, for two reasons: first because it's it's written from a roughly a vaguely black nationalist perspective that is that seeks to argue that uh any progress African Americans have ever made they've made largely on their own. There's no such thing as white abolitionists. there's no such thing as a republican party. there was no such thing as us as a civil rights movement that attracted millions of whites as well as blacks, so it's erasing a history of conflict over those issues throughout American history because of that perspective and that distorts. And the second source of its distortion was that it was written with the goal of justifying reparations. And, and that distorts the way they approach history too, because uh, it not only erases white allies from the history of, of black freedom struggles, it, it makes all whites responsible for the, the various forms of oppression African Americans have suffered through the centuries, the very real oppression they've suffered. And in in order to do that, in a way that I don't quite understand, the supporters of reparations seem to feel the need to argue that all white people were enriched by the oppression of blacks. And this, this goes f- flat up against... Uh, uh, a well-known understanding that slave economies inhibit economic development, restrict opportunities for whites living in the proximity of slave economies, and consigned generations of whites as well as blacks to poverty and misery. And it, doesn't, it seems to me that a better case for reparations would be a, a more truthful account of the disastrous consequences of the slave economy for the United States and for Southern, the Southern United States in particular. So I was particularly concerned with the factual errors in the essay, the essay by Matthew Desmond, which, which was all about the relationship between slavery and capitalism. And like the argument about the American Revolution, gets that relationship exactly backwards. That is, it wants to claim that all of Northern wealth was based on slavery when it's a much stronger case to say that the entire slave economy was based on the enormous wealth and consumer demand emanating from the more advanced economies and more developed economies in in England and the North at the time. There is a powerful relationship between capitalism and slavery, but it's the reverse of the one. It's close to being the reverse of the one that's posited by that essay and by the 1619 Project. So it's, again, it's not just a question of getting your facts wrong. It's getting them wrong in a way that, that reverses some of the major findings of historians over the past several generations.
0: Uh, that's a perfect segue into my next question, because I was going to ask you specifically about the Desmond essay um, and you answered kind of part of what of what I wanted to ask. Okay. But I suppose a follow up to that is what is a better way of understanding the relationship between slavery and capitalism or the development of American capitalism? Because, you know, you, you just alluded to uh, it, it being very important to the development of capitalism, but not in the way that that Desmond lays out. Um, so what is a better way of understanding it?
3: Well, to take off, uh, it's a global issue rather than a U.S. issue. So the the way capitalism and slavery operates in the United States is not quite the same, is slightly a different story from the way the relationship developed over the centuries uh, in the Atlantic economy. So you could say we have three distinct phases in a sense. The first, slavery by uh, the imperial powers of Portugal and Spain that uh, uh, that inaugurate the Atlantic slave trade and uh, bring large numbers of slaves to the Caribbean and, and South America did not benefit from that Development because those economies at home were backward, were basically those were extensions of the feudal system of expansion. So after one and a half centuries of development uh, of the, of activity, intense activity in the Atlantic world, the result for Spain and Portugal was economically nil in terms of its economic development. It's only when Great Britain and to some extent, the Netherlands uh, get involved in the slave trade, particularly in the 18th century, that you begin to see a connection between the development of capitalism and the Atlantic slave trading world. Uh, and there, there is pretty much a consensus among historians and economic historians who spent decades going over this, that the slave trade contributed something to the industrial development of Great Britain, but that it probably would have happened otherwise. That is, it would have gone slower. It might have taken a slightly different form. But here's the point. See, coming from the perspective I come from, uh, 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 the, the, the great debates over the transition from feudalism to capitalism that formed my understanding of this whole issue taught me that capitalism developed prior to industrialization, and it was the prior development of capitalism, particularly in England and Great Britain, but mostly in England, that led to the development of England's involvement in deep engagement in the slave trade. So in that sense, capitalism precedes Britain's major involvement in the slave trade and gives rise to both New World slave economies and the English call In the Anglo-American world and industrialization, so the development of capitalism is prior to both industrialization and British involvement in the slave trade, and uh, then comes the United States. You have in the United States the story is is slightly different because industrialization uh, 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 industrialization doesn't happen in a significant way until the nineteenth century, after after a century or more of having slaves in, in the Southern colonies in particular, but every state, every colony was had slavery. Uh, and And there it seems to me that it's the development of an extraordinary explosion of consumer demand emanating from the capitalist world for textiles, cotton, the goods, or, you know, tobacco, rice, sugar, coffee. Uh, It's the consumer demand from an already developing capitalist world that is giving life and breathing new life into the slave economy. Some people call that what happened in the United States in the the 19th century, a second slavery. But I, I tend to think of it as a third slavery. After the the Portuguese and Spanish slavery after the 18th century British Anglo-American slavery comes a third cotton economy that's uh, located primarily in the American South, but again, is driven by the development of capitalism. So, for example, the first textile mills go up in, in Rhode Island, Slater's Mills, before there is a cotton gin. It is the existence of those mills and the demand Coming from the northern industrial, the nascent northern industrial economy that causes Southerners to say, we got to figure out some way of producing our cotton more efficiently. And it's Eli Whitney comes down and produces it, but his his cotton gin is patented two years or something like that after Slater's mills go up in, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So the relationship between capitalism and slavery is very powerful. But it varies over time. And it's mostly by the 19th century, the capitalist economy that is driving the prosperity of the slave economies.
4: And so you've been very critical of a tendency that you call racial consensus history. And I think you could arguably describe the 1619 Project as that. So can you explain what you mean by racial Consensus history and why is that a problem to you?
3: Well, it's it's. I already I, it's something I did allude to in my first in my first answer. It's the the assumption the assumption that there is no conflict among whites over issues like races and slavery in the United States, which leaves us with no explanation for why slavery was abolished in the northern states after the American Revolution, why a civil war erupted over slavery. We all agree that it was caused by slavery. Um, And why hundreds of thousands of whites were killing one another in a war that became a revolutionary war to overthrow slavery. Where does the 14th Amendment come from? Where does the 15th Amendment come from? There, There is abundant evidence, and we saw it last year when tens of thousands of whites marched into the streets in the middle of a pandemic to protest the outrageous murder of George Floyd. There have always been large numbers of whites divided amongst themselves in alliance with blacks and uh, uh, in a struggle against slavery and racial discrimination in the United States. And the the, the 1619 Project erases that and instead posits a, a, a racial consensus among whites that is unchanging, and it uses biological metaphors to posit, or even biblical metaphors, right? The, that racism is when you say racism is built into the DNA of the United States, or that it's America's original sin, you know, those things are unchanging. DNA passes down through the generations, and and original sin is reborn with every new generation, right? And it's it's designed to show an unchanging white racial consensus. And that to me is not just uh a historical it's it's almost anti-historical it's not it's not it's not the biological metaphor that's the problem it's the specifically the dna metaphor so we use metaphors all the time that are biological like we say the mother country or generations you know the 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 generation of world war of 70 of 1917 or something like that and the 60s generation and it's all designed they're designed to show You know, the historical specificity of a particular moment as it was differentiated from a previous moment or from what came after. But when you say DNA or original sin, uh, it's as it's used in particular in the 1619 Project and elsewhere. It's designed to show something that doesn't change, a white racial consensus in which that's born with the United States and is with us still. So that it, it, it will not differentiate between... Uh, a slave picking cotton on a mississippi plantation in the 1850s and a tenured professor at harvard who if, if they're both black they're both subjected to exactly the same situ- you know same white racial consensus and nothing has fundamentally altered that and that seems to me to be you know unhelpful as a way of figuring out where we are right now and what kind of politics we need at this moment.
4: And I I want to get to the anti-slavery movement, but I mean, what you just said made me think because even among establishment Democrats today, they often kind of use this framing of original sin in our DNA. And it kind of begs the question, I mean, if it's that hopeless, why, why, why vote for whatever Democratic candidate that is saying this, trying to get our vote? It's kind of ironic in that way. I think uh, it's
3: well that. it goes back to what I said earlier about the nationalist assumption that that we're never going to get anything from white allies so we're going to have to do this on our own and 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 that seems to me the logical politics that comes out of the assumption that of a white racial consensus an unchanging white racial consensus yes par- the paradox is that if you actually believe that as you said then why have any politics? If it hasn't changed uh, over the course of 250 years, what makes you think you can do anything now? What makes you think hiring Robin DiAngelo to teach you to to be an anti-racist is going to somehow change what a fundamental structural transformation, like the overthrow of the largest wealthiest slave economy on earth, didn't change, right? (laughs) I, I, if if, you, if that's not enough to cause people to change, then, then you know, s- seminars isn't going to do it either.
4: Well, on that point, maybe the opposite of Robin D'Angelo, the anti-slavery movement, um, which, you know, I think is one of this country's most powerful mass movements in, in our history. Um, I mean, generally, what do you think the left can kind of learn today? from that, obviously, a very different time period, different movement, but just like the way that movement had an impact on U.S. politics, what can we kind of take from that today?
3: Oh, I, I think it's an uh, – this is a lesson I've come to very slowly over, after years of studying it, and, and basically has to do with coalition building. Right? It's It's notorious, it's famous, it's, it's accepted by all historians that the Republican Party – in the 1850s, was a kind of unwieldy coalition between diverse, often contradictory elements. And yet it succeeds. And and I think watching how you build that kind of coalition among people who might disagree about a lot of other things, disagree about internal improvements, disagree about immigration, disagree about all sorts of things, if you can find a way of marshalling an underlying anti-slavery animus and tacking it to a particular policy in this case preventing slavery from expanding into the western territories it's possible to build out of these discordant elements a, a viable political coalition but but it's beyond that it's beyond that because because even a political coalition like that once you get to civil war right they need to go beyond uh, a Republican party coalition. So the Lincoln and the Republicans are quite conscious that they're going to have to get the votes of war Democrats, right? Who may be hostile to emancipation, but will stay with it if they can be persuaded, say, that this is a war primarily to, to restore the Union and we're willing to swallow ultimately the Emancipation Proclamation and even the 13th Amendment. If, as long as we restore the union. So you find another way of holding that coalition together. And it goes beyond that too, because the the coalition, the, the political coalitions have to be sustained by larger social coalitions. So that Republican coalition comes to rely on a number of Populations that are outside of formal politics, large numbers of women, for example, uh, contribute to the the war effort in a variety of different ways. For example, the Republicans place a great deal of faith and hope uh, uh, in the non-slaveholders of the South. Right, they are initially very reluctant to secede. There are enough non-slaveholders in in the northern, in the upper South, to prevent those states from joining the Confederacy, which is a devastating blow to the Confederacy right from the start. They they just assumed that every slave state would join them, but the slaveholders in those states cannot get the non-slaveholders on board. There's good deal of evidence that they were reluctant secessionists, So we know that over the course of the war they were the first to abandon the Confederacy, and by the last. Year of the war, they are there are massive defections from the Confederate Army from those. But the biggest, most important group outside of formal politics that becomes part of the tacit Republican coalition are the slaves themselves. It becomes very clear from the very earliest weeks of the war that, that the slaves understood this war to be about their own freedom, their own emancipation. And by the end of the first year of the war, Republicans are saying uh, very clearly in, based on letters coming back to their families from the South, from soldiers in the South, from from uh, 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 union officials in the South, writing to Washington officials, the only reliably loyal people we, we are encountering in the South are the slave population. And in formal political terms, loyalty begets an obligation to protect on the part of of the state and 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 to a large extent it's the loyalty versus disloyalty issue that is always determining the fate of emancipation and it became very clear very early on that the slaves were an indispensable loyal part of the loyal, of the coalition of the loyal. And so So when you listen to Republicans like William Seward talk about this coalition, they say this is a fight between slaveholders and non-slaveholders. And the non-slaveholders include all of those people I mentioned. It includes the slaves. It includes women. It includes Democrats. It includes, it includes, you know, everybody inside and outside the coalition. So that's the lesson I took from it that, that Don't be so picky about the ideological purity of the people inside your coalition. Just keep your eye on the prize. Know what it is that this is all about. This is fundamentally about uh, about the the slavery and the destruction of slavery. And do what you need to do to keep that coalition together. Because if you can't do that, you're not going to get anything.
0: I want to follow up on that by asking one pretty basic question about the anti-slavery movement, which is, how big was it? Because I think that, you know, sometimes in the popular imaginary, there's this idea that the abolitionists were like a pretty small kind of vor- moral vanguard. Um, but I think something that's interesting about what you just said and, and about your writing in general is that you make it clear that this is a mass movement um, and that, you know, took many years of uh, kind of different groups, uh, not just coming together, but actively, as you were saying, <laughs> doing politics together. Um, and as you, as you just said, like the coalition was at times fragile. Um, so how, so first of all, how big was it? And then the other question I have, uh, just following from your point about kind of maybe throwing ideological purity, like by the wayside at sometimes, um, something you've written about for Jacobin before is this idea that we see coming from some quarters of the left that like, well, white abolitionists were actually just racist anyway. Or like, you know, this idea that like, well, Abraham Lincoln, like, sure, the Emancipation Proclamation, but like secretly, or like deep down, he was a racist. Uh, h- how do we make sense of that charge? I, I don't find well, it satisfying. It's
3: but- uh, it's, com- <laughs> it's completely unsatisfying, because it's based on an, an idealist conception of history that fails to step back and look at the structural situation that people are in. So you have a situation. Uh, let's take the Mississippi Valley during the Civil War, where some of the most violent versions of emancipation are taking place. These are huge plantation districts that are overrun by Union forces relatively early in the war. And what you see is a, a very violent process, often uh, by which the Union Army is literally tearing up the slave system in in this extremely wealthy part of the plantation South. Well, the point is that the Union army is the revolutionary force, or one of the two major revolutionary forces in conjunction with the slaves themselves in the South. And there is too much focus on the ideological inadequacies of some of the people who are in the Union army. Right. Some of them are racist. Some of them do nasty things to the people they are in the process of liberating. And it's it's very important to step back and look at this as a structural transformation that doesn't depend on the ideological uh, orientation of individual soldiers. Let me give you a, a very specific example Uh Historians of, of emancipation during the Civil War rather like John C. Fremont. This he was he was uh he was the Republican Party candidate in 1856, and he famously declared the emancipation of slaves very early in in Missouri during the Civil War. Uh uh, but it it was and he was told by Lincoln to rewrite his order, and then he was fired. Oh, my God. He was uh, and he was fired because he was incompetent as a general, right? Mostly. Because he was just not a competent general. Now, if if you, by comparison, you take someone like William uh, Tecumseh Sherman, who, unlike Fremont, doesn't have very strong anti-slavery convictions, is kind of racist, but is a very competent general. Now, if you step back and say, the Union Army is the force that is digging up slavery wherever it goes, then what you want to destroy slavery are competent generals, Right? So William Tecumseh Sherman is a much better emancipationist than John C. Fremont ever was because he was totally incompetent as both an emancipation and a general. Right. So you you need to step back and see the degree to which that the the, the uh, you know the quality of an emancipationist does not depend on how they feel about black people. It depends on whether they are participating. And actively and effectively in the destruction of slavery. And I, I think, you know, that, and I think it's, it's that idealism that has taken a hold. I don't want to say it doesn't matter what, what, you know, individual soldiers feel, but you need to step back and accept that it's without a Union army and without the successful defeat of the Confederacy on the battlefield you're not going to get emancipation there is no emancipation and it's not as though it's not as though it's a normal thing in wars for uh armies to go around emancipating slaves it's actually quite the opposite the normal kind of thing that happens in wars is what the confederate army did they go into pennsylvania and they round up blacks and enslave them when they Take over areas in the Mississippi Valley that had been occupied by the Union forces. They re-enslave massive numbers of, of Blacks. That's what armies tend to do throughout human history. They enslave. Why is the Union army not enslaving? Well, there's a policy coming out of Washington telling them not to, telling them to do the opposite, right? So if you don't step back and look at the, the political, you know, stakes, that are that are being fought out and and the policies that are coming out of washington and what the union army is actually there to do then it seems to me it, 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 if you're going to reduce it to how how nice this individual soldiers feel about black people you're never going to you're never going to understand what's going on
0: so I, I want to just quickly jump back to the first part of my question, um, which is okay. h- how big can we say the anti-slavery movement was? And let's not include the Union Army for this. And I okay. know, you know, it's kind of it's kind of. Um, it's kind of like a, a vague question or, you know, obviously we can't put an exact number on it. But if we look at, you know, groups and uh, anti-slavery publications and, um, you know, whatever else uh, we can define within well, the scope of the movement. I mean, just to get a size, because we were talking about it being a mass movement rather than like a committed vanguard. Yes, right. Yeah. Yes,
3: yes exactly. Uh, the Republican Party is an anti-slavery party. And it wins a majority of the votes in the North. So you can say with some certainty that a majority of Northerners by 1860 are are committed to anti-slavery politics. Right? I, you know, the Confederates used to justify secession in part by claiming that and complaining that a whole generation of Northern Northerners were raised on anti-slavery. You know, uh, anti-slavery school books. They listened to anti-slavery sermons in their churches. Their parents were anti-slavery, that a whole generation of Northerners had grown up thinking in, in pro-slavery, in anti-slavery terms. And I think that's basically accurate. I used to have exactly the opposite problem when I was teaching Southern history. I would try to get students to not be so censorious or not assume a kind of moral high ground about Southerners because they had grown up in a world that accepted slavery and that was that that the world had accepted slavery for thousands of years, right? So yes, they're on the wrong side, but, but, you know, you could have easily been on the wrong side. And that's one of the things Abraham Lincoln used to say. If I was born in the South, I would probably be pro-slavery, just like most Southerners are. But I was born in, you know, I wasn't born in the North, actually. I grew up in the North. I accepted the principles of of my Northern education. My But my parents were anti-slavery. They went to an anti-slavery church. So he grew. I can't remember a time when I wasn't anti-slavery. And I think probably the majority of Northerners felt the same way. You couldn't get you couldn't get a Northerner to argue that slavery was a constitutionally protected right of property. Even even the Democrats couldn't bring themselves to say that because they wouldn't get elected. So if, if you think in those terms, this is where Matt Carp is, is right. We're talking about millions of abolitionists. Millions of people vote for someone who has explicitly said, I am committed to putting slavery on a course of ultimate extinction. Right. And if you don't take that seriously, you say, oh, but look at the way he planned to do it. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't, you know, you know, all right. You know, (laughs) it's a revolutionary, it's a revolutionary transformation in in not just U.S. history, but in in global history. Really.
4: And. To go back to uh, William T. Sherman as an abolitionist, I got to say a really funny image just popped in my head of Sherman in a white fragility session with Robin DiAngelo. Um, <laughs> gave me a pretty good laugh. But, <laughs> right? I mean, I'll, I, he's... You know, yeah, maybe know he should
3: have... <laughs> He's horrible about slavery and, and, you know, there's a, there's a notorious incident where during the famous march from Atlanta to the sea where a number of, of enslaved people run to his lines and one of his commanders pulls up the bridges and they're stuck on the other side of the river and the slaveholders come after them and, and do horrible things to them, you know, and he's, he's more or less indifferent to the immediate suffering of those people. But he is destroying slavery more effectively than almost any Union commander, except maybe Grant.
4: Yeah, and, and you know, and what's frustrating about this is, you know, none of what you just said to me is denying any agency to African Americans or enslaved people. And, and like you said, I mean, enslaved people fully understood throughout this whole process that this had to do with them, and they, of course, acted that way. But you know, there's nothing denying agency to say that other groups were being active too. You know what I mean?
3: No. One of the first things I ever published as a young historian, as a young scholar, was a an, an essay on the political significance of slave resistance. And 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 all that's happened in the 30, 40 years since I've since I wrote that and published that is is affirmed my belief and, and deepened my conviction that, that you cannot understand emancipation outside of the agency of the slaves. Moreover. The big surprise to me when I switched from studying slavery to anti-slavery politics was the realization that that the Republicans understood that as well. They knew that for emancipation to work, significant numbers of slaves had to run to Union lines and undermine the slave system from within. Ultimately, significant numbers of of enslaved men had to join the Union Army and become one-fifth of the Union Army by the last year of the war. So the Republicans knew that the agency of the slaves was a central part of the process they were they were embarked on.
4: And this is kind of a good lead into what might be our last question. And you know, as a former history public school teacher, I definitely care about this one. Um, And a lot of the right wing attack on the 1619 project, which to be clear is not the attack you're doing, but from the right wing, a lot of it has now transformed into. How do we teach history in our schools, critical race theory? All these things are kind of melding together. So, I mean, how do you think public schools should teach the history of slavery and civil war in the United States?
3: Teach the conflict. Just don't lose sight of the conflict, really. That's what bothers me about the new, the, the Matthew Desmond essay. Um, that's what bothers me about so much of the the so much of the recent scholarship uh, is that it erases it erases the conflict that's always been there. Without conflict, it's, there is no history. It is driven by conflict, seems to me.
0: I, I think I have actually just one more last question, um, kind of maybe to go back to the sort of initial question about the 1619 Project. Um, so I, I think, you know, um, something people obviously find uh this idea that you can trace a sort of unbroken string from slavery to the oppressions or the inequalities of modern day, very compelling, right? And uh, just by way of anecdote, um, a few years ago, when we started hearing uh, this, I guess, narrative that modern policing evolved out of slave patrols, I actually wrote to a historian of policing. James, I'm going (laughs) to I'm going to ask you about that, too. But I, I wrote to a historian of policing. And, you know, I was like, can you recommend some reading on this particular question? Because, you know, I, I don't know, I like have questions and, and I'm not really sure like about the veracity of this. Right. And the historian who of course I'm not going to name here um, was, was very like kind and thoughtful and was basically like, this is a very hard claim to sustain empirically but I'm reticent to come out swinging against it because people find it so compelling. So AKA what the historians who didn't want to sign the letter to up, up to the New York times about the 1619 project, a, a variation of kind of that sentiment, right? So um, two questions for you. One did policing evolve out of slave patrols since you are a historian of that time period. And I really would like to finally get an answer on record. Uh, and then B, um, I guess, again, because people find that because people find kind of these metaphors or like these linkages so compelling, is there a political utility to, I don't know, kind of maybe fudging the facts or maybe there's a more diplomatic way of putting it? But.
3: Well, I'm not a historian of policing, but by my impression has always been, let's let's narrow the question down to when do you get police forces? Because it's like, when we talk things, when we say things like defund the police, we're talking about defunding more or less urban police forces. And you don't get urban police force. Urban police forces are a function of urbanization, and you don't get much urbanization in slave economies. So you first see it in Boston and Philadelphia and New York and like that. And it's, and it's, it, it's a, it, it's it's structurally it has always tended to be a rather reactionary force. It's there to uphold the order as it exists, and if the order is inequitable and unjust, its gonna police are going to uphold. So a lot of it was originally suppress immigrants, suppress workers, things like that, you know. But 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 the police forces we live with today have, uh, as far as I know, have their origins there, not in slave patrols. I you know. I'm the I, I, read, I wrote two books about slavery. I, I take the history of slavery very seriously. but I don't think that we need to go back to slavery to justify policies, Designed to counteract mass incarceration because mass incarceration doesn't come out of slavery; it comes out of the 1980s and 90s, and it's a, uh, it's it's that's where you start to see massive increases in incarceration rates, and it seems to me that that the the slavery, you know, on one hand, it has to. It's a truism. Everything in the past produces everything in the future. Right. So, yeah, slavery is part of our past. But it seems to me that that the specific problems we face right now have more specific origins. And it's not it doesn't help me to tie mass incarceration to slavery. it's, It's more helpful to me to tie it to Clinton. And to neoliberalism, and to what happened to the Democratic Party, and why that has to be dealt with now as a problem right and the same with the the massive inequality that has emerged in the United States and reached record levels starting in nineteen seventy you know, uh, starting in the 1970s, that that that's a problem we are living with right now. If you want to tie it back to Jim Crow or to slavery, I don't find that particularly helpful because it's the policy reversals that emerged and starting in the 1960s, the decision not to tax rich people at the levels they had been taxed at, not to tax corporations, not to, you know, a whole series of policies that were implemented that have resulted in this Dramatic increase in inequality and economic injustice. That is a threat to democracy right now. And, you know, uh, I don't see the it doesn't help me figure out what needs to be done right now to tell me that its origins are in slavery or racism or something like that or, or Jim Crow. I just don't see that that's helpful. And it's not because, again, it's not because I'm someone who doesn't care about that history. I've devoted my life to that history. It just doesn't seem to me. It just doesn't seem to me to be helpful right now. The kind of stuff you learn from history on board, the more general stuff that I was mentioning earlier, the importance of coalition building, the not worrying too much about the ideological purity of the coalition, so long as the policy is is clearly understood and what needs to be done. So, you know the 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 populists of the late nineteenth century of the eighteen nineties, for example, the 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 colored farmers' alliance and the farmers' alliance threaten the power of the of the landlord lord class that had emerged as very powerful. You know, and the landlord class fights back and destroys so much of that what had been achieved in Reconstruction and massive disfranchisement that results in the disfranchisement, not simply of most blacks, but of a substantial number of poor whites, because that potential coalition is so threatening to the ruling class that had emerged in the South in the late 19th century. And it doesn't help understand that, what was going on, to say, but look how racist so many of those those white farmers were. Yeah, they were, but they had interests class interests that could potentially if they unified seriously threaten the the powers that be the ruling class and I think th- those are the kind of lessons we need to care about whereas you know again
1: uh,
3: <laughs> seminars on how to be an anti-racist don't don't help they don't help they do they probably do more damage you know. I can't tell you how many how many people I know, even in my own family, who voted for Trump, who voted for Trump, it, and have a deep abiding resentment of the coastal elites who continually refer to them as racists. And I know I know these people because it's in my family because they're not racists that they can't stand being called racists. And the 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 I I I watched I watched Ted Cruz two days ago. Uh, interrogating uh, a group of witnesses before a congressional committee about uh, whether or not the voter ID laws were racist, and the three Democrats all said they're racist, and two others said they weren't racist. And he just skewered the the, the Democrats because they should have said, "No, they're not. They're not explicitly racist. They're part of a Republican Party project that goes back." decades designed to to overthrow democracy in a variety of different ways. It's a power grab. Right. And he he could get them. On the racism charge, but if they turned it around and said, you know, you guys are systematically, you know, reapportioning legislatures so that the Republicans will stay in control and Democrats lose, you're systematically reapportioning congressional districts, you're taking over the judiciary, you're doing everything you can to ensure that your party wins permanently and the Democrats lose. And part of that is voter ID laws and a whole bunch of things that will disproportionately affect blacks, but are basically part of a much much larger power grab. The racism argument isn't—it's—it's it's not going to work if you see what the Republican Party has been up to for the last 50, forty years. What do, what do they think the federal society comes from? You know?
0: I think a lot about how uh, Eric Foner always sort of famously identifies reconstruction as like a really important time period that the left should study, uh, you know, in terms of like thinking about coalition building, as, as you were talking about, and also political strategy. Um, so just, you know, again, to kind of, um uh, I don't know. Go back to your comments on coalition building. I just personally find that a much more useful way of recalling history or like finding historical analogs than to just say that you know everything can be traced back to slavery or Jim Crow. So,
3: or racism.
0: Or right, exactly. Or, right, or a you know race a kind of transhistorical I mean, to racism. Go back, or something. To go
3: back to where we. To go back to where we started, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, a uh, 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 fine historian of early American history named David Waldstreicher, has uh, wrote in his very first book that uh, the American Revolution did not uh, did not invent racism. Racism had existed for quite some time. What the American Revolution actually invented was anti-racism. And he's repeating that in a new book that he's about to publish. You know, there is there's a history of anti-racism. When we study the history of racial ideology, we tend to study the racists. We don't study the anti-racists. And, and you know, we're, we're mostly looking at the anti-racists for the inadequacies of their anti-racism. Right. <laughs> but, you know, they're not anti-racist the way I think we should be anti-racist. Therefore, they're racist. Well, you know, you have to study that as a part of the history, too, because it's there. It's there. There's a conflict.
0: I, uh, I think that is the perfect note to end on, because we have kept you a little bit past the time we said we would. Uh, so, again, Jim, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, James Oaks, again, his latest book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. Thanks very much.
3: My pleasure.
1: He's so good. He's that's, He's one of the best American historians we have right now. He and he's he's so. I love like he's he's so grounded in in like historical fact and research, but he deeply deeply cares about like other people and history yeah. and like and he has principles that like help guide him through uh through what he's talking about and so. Um...
0: I I shouted out, uh, you know, a whole list of his books at the beginning of the interview. Um, But I I really encourage everybody to check out not just those books, but he also does a lot of popular writing. Um, Mm -hmm. He has been in Jacobin many times, as well as Nonsite and, you know, many other publications. Um, I think he's a great writer as well. So definitely, definitely look you know seek out his work um and and I just want to add again you know in cl- in case it wasn't clear from the entire interview this is a preeminent historian of slavery right and of emancipation so like he mentions this during the interview um he does have criticisms yes of the 1619 project but I don't think that we can accuse him of not caring about slavery or not taking the legacy of slavery seriously
1: yeah <laughs> it's it's so insane it's um, that's the like so much of the people just there's like this amnesia where it's like, you know, nothing's ever been tried before. No one's ever like opened a book until like, you know, the New York Times started writing about this history. And, um, and then you get I mean, James is just one of like a number of like important prominent historians that have made significant historical contributions that are like, yeah, we've actually looked at. The available historical research and what you're saying doesn't add up to like what's there. So that means you're making something up. It's ideological.
0: I, like, I also want to point out really quickly, um, because while the interview was running, I did, I did peep into the chat for a second. And I saw that things were a little more heated than I think they usually are for the Jacobin show chat. Uh, I don't know, actually, Kale. you, you keep a, you keep a closer eye on that. So maybe it was all par for the course, uh, but I did see some accusations of racism and so forth. And I, I don't think I've seen those before. Maybe they're there all the time.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's like, I think it's, it's like, I, I, it's tough. It's Yeah, tough I get stuff that to... it's a it's like, it's, I think like this stuff affects people very deeply. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the I... problem is that like, we don't have left institutions in society to make like, the, like a left political case, like one that mm-hmm. centers working people and mm-hmm. their interests. Um, and so like, the 1619 project, like, it's roundly accepted by the business community by yeah yeah that's what i
0: that's that's just what i wanted to say that like the 1619 project you know um like it or hate it or whatever um this is uh this is basically a mainstream narrative at this point it was published by the New York Times it you know won a Pulitzer Prize uh the the uh organizers and the authors of this project are MacArthur fellows they're tenured professors um you know like you said like a lot of corporate a a, a lot of corporations and businesses have applauded and you know lifted up and you know adopted this uh this project um so I you know I think that I, that's why I wanted to have James Oakes on. Um, I, I think that there is room for a left criticism, uh, precisely from the angle that James was coming from. And again, you know, if you did not find that compelling, obviously totally fine. That's, you know, your prerogative, but I, I think that, uh, I think it's, I think it's really valuable to challenge some of these, uh, some of these narratives.
1: Well, and we're also, we're not, like, an academic institution. We're not, like, our job isn't to, you know, just mine history for history's sake. Like, we go back to history, like we were saying before, because, like, we actually think there's um, important uh, aspects to it when it comes to political decision-making today. That, uh, and this is, I think, like, James made that point at the end of um, when you were asking about policing, and James is like, yeah, modern policing in America today does not come out of slavery. That doesn't mean that slavery didn't happen or that it wasn't bad. It was really bad. <laughs> like, it just means that, like, when we're dealing with, like, in the reason why we ask, like, where modern policing comes out of, it's not because we want to, you know, it's just like a fun little factoid to know. It's because we believe in our political worldview that, like, if you want to disroot something, uh that is oppressive and exploitative and uh that is uh dominating people's lives. You have to understand what like what it actually is, where it comes from, how it is sustained over time. Uh and trying to understand the origins helps explain uh not entirely, but it does get us, you know, moving on how to explain how to then actually deal with the problem in a political way today that uh, it, so, like, when we say like mass incarceration is a phenomena that has happened over the last few decades, that comes out of I, I totally buy Donner and John Clegg's work on this that you know out of uh, kind of the failures of the great society to like we didn't get welfare, we got jails and and more policing. Um, that that helps explain like okay, well, that's a lot of the the calculation here that like we actually should be dismantling mass incarceration and building up a welfare state mm-hmm. uh because mass incarceration is a response to poverty and to to joblessness and to neoliberalization and to automation.
0: Right. It's important to get the history right so we can better fight for the solutions. Yeah. Simples all right up. well i i just want to say again i really appreciated hearing from james oaks um i'm really proud that we did this interview and i i thought that he had some great things to say so um thank you everybody for watching uh again check out james oaks work uh not just his books but his articles as well uh again he is published in jacobin and many other places so on that note uh thanks for watching again and have a good night
1: see you next week bye